The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson. Each week on the podcast, we visit a different foodie city and explore the cuisine that makes that place special, whether it be custard tarts in Lisbon, mango beer in Mumbai, or lizard curry in Guatemala. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. There you go, Sam. Thank you very, very much. I should have hit record like five minutes ago. <laughs> you know, that, that would have been unbelievable. Um, uh, but so basically, I was looking at like kind of your guest roster. I'm, I'm definitely a little different. In that uh, it looks like I, I sell European wines. You have a lot of California winemakers on here. How do you want to do this? What do you want to talk about? Well, we have everything. Lot, yeah, we have a lot of um, uh, people that work at wineries that listen. And so they're totally going to want to talk about uh, European wines because or hear about European wines because they have enough wines from California. Oh, well, yeah, I want to know. Who, who's I mean, the guy that you him. buy shoes from Lyle the guy who you buy shoes from must he must make a he makes a living off of commissions well from- I mean I don't buy shoes from one guy you know it's just like the wine game man you know I'm buying shoes from I mean it's interesting shoes were really hard to come by and then there was these two things that were created one is called goat and one is called stock x and they're basically stock exchanges of things so I have my entire collection on StockX. I have around 50 pairs of shoes that I'm following. <laughs> you can bid on things. The, the value changes tremendously. Like I've gotten very lucky recently and that I'm selling all my Nikes because the quality is crap. And basically Nikes have gotten really hot the last two or three years. And my collection of Nikes went up like almost 3000% in value. Shoes I bought for 80 bucks are like $3,000 now. Jesus. So I am the way, what I'm doing now is I'm selling all of my Nikes. I'm almost finished with that. And I am putting it right back into real quality, you know, new balance. You know how they say in wine, all roads lead to Burgundy and sneakers, all roads lead to new balance. There's no (laughs) question about it. (laughs) That's the quality, you know? I I mean, that's really interesting. That's the second time I've heard this. And since I saw my niece over Christmas and she says, do you like my new New Balance? And I'm like, are New Balance in? And she goes, oh yeah. She says, they're totally in. And the quality, like really high quality. I had no idea. The quality is amazing. Some of them are made in America. Some of the New Balances are- Some are made in America. Although there is a controversy happening right now, they're being sued by a consumer- group because in order to say made in america it has to be like a hundred percent new balance made in usa is only 70 percent and 30 percent is from like other um so there's so there's a little controversy there but i prefer i have made in usa i have a lot but i prefer made in england because the quality is a little bit better there um actually not a little bit like a big leap um and it's a little more pricey uh but it's worth it in my opinion i mean the brown if i mean my sneakers are on the corner there well you can see you know quickly the the brown this is this is how you know it's made in england it's the brown box and it says made in england since 1982 
That's what it's all about. And most of my collection are these brown boxes and the quality is much, much, much higher on those. Like New Balance, uh, New Balance was a New Balance was a, a Boston company, wasn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. And you were in they Boston, still are. weren't you? While they you still worked in Boston, right? They still are. Me? Yeah. Who? You you Me? worked. There. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes, I did. I went to work to worked in Boston. Went to college in Boston. I started my wine career in Boston, um, and everything. My wine career started not very excitingly. My stepmom is like, "You got to get a job." You know, I was 18 and I'm like, oh, man, I'm like, well, I like books. you know, I, I work in a bookstore and, you know, my stepmom's like, you know, it's kind of boring working in a bookstore. Maybe you should, you know, you always like wine at Passover. Um, so maybe you could get into that because I did. I mean, I liked I had a white Bordeaux one Passover, but then I had Slivovitz, another Passover, and that was awful. Um, and obviously, you know, Manischewitz, which is disgusting. Um, so that was like my wine experience up to this point. And then a wine store happened to be around the corner from where I was living in Boston. And I went in and I said, I'd like to work here. And the rest is history. I can't say the name of the wine shop because the way they gave me my wine education, I started working there when I was 18. We all know what the drinking age is. Um, and I still was very interested in wine. So they would let me pay for cases of wine in cash, not on credit, <laughs> but go taste wine at home. And I would start, I obviously started off with California wine. I remember some of my favorites were Pedrin, Selly, Zinfandel. Yes, that, it was good. It was $6.99. I had, I, the first oh. wine I ever bought was some sort of Pinot Noir that was $6.99 a bottle too. Um, $6.99, you have to remember in 1993, you're not getting what $6.99 gets you today. All right, that's very important. I mean, I don't think I could drink the $6.99 wines that I was drinking then today, but it got me into the foreign labels, you know, cause I, it was just, I wanted more. I was just like, okay, this is Pechenselli, this is Zinfandel, it's from whatever, Dry Creek, pretty straightforward. What's this wine with like all this crazy French French lettering on it? And why is it so much more expensive? And that is what got me hooked. I wanted to know why things were different from other things. And that is still to this day uh, what excites me the most about wine. Why is this more expensive? Why is this different? But why is this expensive falls under the umbrella of why is it different? You know, because, you know, e economic, you know, my partner is an economist. So, you know, his reasoning is always bland. You know, it's more kind of like supply and demand, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, you can say that about everything, about why something's expensive and why something is cheap. But no, I mean, you know, there's prestige, which is a huge part of why certain wines are more expensive than other wines. And there is a quality thing, too. You know, I mean, people who charge a thousand dollars for a bottle, it's not like you're going to be drinking some, you know, watery, you know, bad bottle of wine. It's going to be somewhat interesting and good. You know, I mean, I can't think of anyone who's charges a thousand dollars a bottle or five hundred dollars a bottle for a wine that's not going to be at least interesting, at least interesting. And at most, you know, it'll change your life. So it's Have a nice you had a bad thousand dollar bottle. Oh, my God, of course. What's the worst? Uh, bad thousand dollar bottle. Oh God, probably eighty nine Lafitte. That wine is garbage. It just it gets grouped in with the ninety, 
and 96 and the 88, but the 89 is trash. It's dilute and uninteresting. And it didn't used to be a thousand dollars, but it became a thousand dollars post 2008. Um, and that is definitely one of the most disappointing wines I've had. And I had it a lot when I worked at this wine store called Crush, because it was a certain client's favorite wine. And he always used to come in and open it for us. And each time it was more disappointing, but I still, he was a very important person in the music business is all I'll say. And so I still had to be like, Oh, it's great. <laughs> this is awesome, man. This is the best yeah. worst bottle of wine I've ever had. Exactly. This is, it's, you know, he'd be like, this is Lafitte. It's got a history. I'm like, I know, you know, and, uh, but it was dilute and terrible, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, I mean, I don't sell thousand dollar bottles of wine because I think that's crazy personally. Um, you know, I mean, I think the most expensive bottle of wine I ever sold at Fast Selections was a Sancerre. I know it's it's very Fast Selections. It was four hundred dollars. It was Francois Cotat two thousand two Cuvee something. They made four cases, and I got one, and I sold one case, four hundred dollars a bottle. I did not take any, um, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming you know is that that's like the essence of fast elections right there the most expensive wine i sold is a 400 dollars sancerre they made four cases though that's kind of like uh you know write that on my headstone so so this is maybe our <laughs> so, greatest and longest cold intro ever <laughs> uh go Bart. sam go. real quick who, who so, the so, <laughs> well sam sam so real quick so so lyle i'm a new um subscriber to your email um, and and have been starting to read it and it's it's a lot of information that comes at you in a very direct way and i have to say now i totally understand it after being on here with you just for the few minutes so thank you very much <laughs> nice to meet you I'm glad you're and, right. uh, yeah and go for it sam uh well a man who needs no introduction because if you read his emails and you hear the first paragraph of his podcast uh this is lyle fast of fast selections um, somebody I've, I've talked about a lot on the show. I've off, I've opened a bunch of bottles that I, that I got from him. Uh, and you know, in our zoom times, it was always somebody like, Oh, let's, let's zoom with Lyle fast. We never put it together now that we're, um, back in our hopefully temporary short-lived Omicron inspired zoom life podcasting. Um, it was like a no brainer. Let's get, let's get Lyle on. Cause I know he's locked down harder than we are. And, and yep, you know, it. <laughs> I figured that was part of your thinking, you uh, know? And yeah. So fast selections quickly, um, give us the 10,000 foot on fast selections and then we'll dive into, uh, all kinds of other things. Cause we got a lot to talk about today. Okay. Basically we opened in 2013 and previously to fast selections, I was always working for other people. I always had tons of ideas and they always got rejected. Um, but I couldn't have enough money to open a wine store in New York City, you know, because it's such a huge upfront investment and it's super risky. Uh, not as risky as the restaurant business, but it's definitely very risky. Um, and there's the established people and it's really hard to kind of make a name for yourself. Uh, but then, as you, all of you must know in California, there was in 2012, I think, when was Gray Davis recalled? um what year was that uh that was pre that was before obama days right no no no. i think it was during obama, it was but during obama? he got recalled 
California was in a fiscal crisis. And as a result of their fiscal crisis, they needed to raise more tax revenue. And one of the things they did to raise more tax revenue was issue lots of licenses for lots of different things. And one of those things was my license, which allows me to sell wine to people across the country via the internet and import wine and distribute wine only out of California. Uh, so my license is in California, and I got that license because of the fiscal crisis in California with the rolling blackouts, everything. They needed more tax money, and, uh, and I applied for that license. I was one of the first people to get it, actually. Uh, in 2012 is when we started the, the process, and we got approved in three or four months. And when we opened Fast Elections, it, it was really fly by the seat of our pants because we had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea what we were selling. We had no idea how we we're going to get the wines over here. Um, I wanted to sell German Spätlese Trockens, dry German Rieslings for like 30 to 30 or for, for $25. That was kind of like my goal. Uh, but there's an old expression called you can't fight the tape. You know that expression? Uh, basically in the old movies in the twenties and the thirties, think Hudsucker proxy. Uh, they're looking at the ticker tape, the stock market, you know, before we had Bloomberg terminals. Um, and basically whatever that said, you had to deal with and and that was basically what made your decisions and basically my customers kind of dictated what i want what i was going to sell in the beginning it was going to be german wine then it evolved to french wine then it evolved to italian wine and i was totally objecting to the italian wine uh for almost two to three years because i was like i'm not kissing you know a thousand frogs to find one prince uh, that that was kind of my big issue because italian wine can be very good don't get me wrong but you got to taste 10 times more to find one good thing because there's such a, it's, 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 there's not an evenness across the country for winemaking technology. When I say technology, I'm not talking about, you know, spoofulation. I'm talking about things like temperature control. All right. You know, things like that. Uh, you know, half the country wasn't even, you know, doing temperature control 15 years ago. Uh, so I didn't want to do that, but we tasted it. We finally got to Italian wines in year three and, uh, I kind of just sell, what's my philosophy? God. Um, Your elevator speech, man. God, I mean, my philosophy. All building really long elevator rides. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 no question. I live, I mean, this is definitely one of the strangest buildings to run a wine import retailer out of. I mean, you know, I should be, you know, working on Wall Street and uh, being a master of the universe, uh, but I'm not. And I only have one client in this building, which I find is very strange. Um, but my kind of philosophy for fast elections, I mean, I have a style of wine, but it's more kind of the best way to, uh, to describe it is I have a lot of clients that are hedge fund people and investors and wall street people. And they all tell me the same thing. They said, if you ever were a hedge fund dude, you would be a billionaire because my, I research incessantly about wine. I mean, it's just and it's all done through kind of like a logical, uh, you know, window, like every single region that we have put on the map from Alto Piemonte to, to German Pinot Noir to what we're doing in 2022 with Swiss wine follows kind of one edict. Where is it getting warm that it used to be cold? Yeah. Um, that's kind of like my big philosophy, I would say. And the three categories that we that define us, uh, German Pinot Noir, Alto Piemonte 
And in 2022, it's going to be Switzerland. Believe me, I'm looking at a massive spreadsheet right now. Um, you know, and my partner is an ex-investment banker and he's a tech entrepreneur and he has a very specific way of looking at things, which is completely opposite the way I look at things. And it really is good for finding wines. You know, I'll say, I want to do Switzerland. Let's go. Here's 50 producers I'm interested in. And then the next day, there's a spreadsheet that you could not even believe uh, that has been created, you know, and we're sending emails out and everything and getting samples arranged, making flights, the whole thing. We do it very scientifically, you know, and we, we know already, I already know there's 468 wineries in Switzerland. I know that Switzerland is kind of like the United States and that they have like 30, 27 different kind of states, you know, and I know that, you know, all the good wineries are either at the top of the country or the bottom of the country. I look at things in a very basic basic way you know that's how i find really good wines i do it from a logical perspective you know i mean not from kind of this flight of fancy you know oh my god passion thing i kind of just analyze it look at it and you know set my goals how many italian wine i mean how many swiss wines do i want and how many offers a year can i do do with the swiss wines how much do they have because switzerland's perfect for us what's the number one complaint about swiss wine Every, I bet every single, every single one of you has the same complaint about Swiss wine. There's only one complaint about it. I've never seen it. No. Uh, well, one, <laughs> you've never seen it. Okay, what else? It's too expensive if you see it. Hmm. That is kind of the number one complaint. And, but, but you never see it. Everything's expensive in Switzerland, right? I mean, well, well, everything is expensive in Switzerland. country. But the minimum wage is a lot more, you know, if you're working in Burger King in Switzerland, you're making like 25 Swiss francs an hour. So of course you can afford like a $15 Starbucks. Um, uh, but when I, when I was there, everything is very expensive. I mean, it's crazy expensive, um, you know, but at the end of the day, they do drink a lot of the stuff there and there's only 468 wineries or whatever, but they want to be in other countries. There is, there is no question, but you have to, they're not as easy to get in contact with as the Germans, the Italians, or the French. You know, they're not interested in kind of the prestige of being in all these restaurants. They just want, you know, good people to like their wines. And uh, I don't know, it's just, uh, and, and the most important thing is, is they have the one grape that people can't get enough of, Pinot Noir. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, Pinot Noir is like crack to Americans. The, like that, that. I mean, I, I can sell an infinite amount of Pinot Noir, but I have many other different types of wines that I can only sell finite amounts of. My beloved Riesling, unfortunately, I can only sell finite amounts of that wine. I can only sell finite amounts of White Burgundy, of Chardonnay. You know, Northern Rhone Syrah is probably the next closest thing to Pinot Noir. Uh, I would say. Um, but, you know, and the wines I look for, they have to be not in this country generally. Um, eventually they will because there's lots of lazy distributors and importers that love reading my emails um, and then approaching my winemakers and saying, you want to be with that guy? You should come with me. Um, so that's something I have to deal with like all the time. Uh, but I don't care. You know why? because great winemakers are born every day. So if someone leaves me, there's someone around the corner. I never get discouraged by that. I mean, I've lost, I've lost an entire portfolio of people. I can open a new company just with all the people I've lost. Um, but in the beginning, I used to get broken up about it. 
now I don't care because, you know, not only are great winemakers born every day, someone retires, the sun comes in, changes the whole thing. There's more energy. There's more dynamism in the winery. They're doing different things. You know, you can finally do whatever, you know, winemaking process you wanted because the old man is, you know, not working anymore, et cetera, et cetera. And go on. Yeah, Yeah, ask questions because I can. let's, Let's talk about how fast selection works because, you know, from from the consumer end, my end of it, right? I get a daily email. Um, I don't, re- you know, I don't read everyone. I don't open everyone, but I, you know, I, I see them every day. Um, you do shipping twice a year, although yep. it's out of it's out of basically American Canyon, so we go and pick it up. Yep. Um, and but from from your end, like, are you? Is it, do you offer 365 different wines a year? Cause it's 365 emails almost, right? How, we does, offer how, does, more. It, how does it work? For, how does it work from, from your end? Like the day to day, you know, you, you didn't know how the wine came in in the beginning. So how does the wine come in? Uh, how do you, how do you find the people that, you know, the wines you're bringing in and um, you know, how do you get it to people? Well, the, the, the wine comes in now through, you know, this is probably the most unexciting part. You know, we have a, a consolidator and a shipper and it eventually gets to Oakland. And once it gets to uh, Oakland, it goes to Napa. And uh, then the inbound happens, which is very important because our warehouse is a drop ship type joint. You know, the stuff comes in and the stuff goes out and some stuff is left. But, you know, we have a we don't like inventory at fast elections at all because inventory is just cost money in so many different possible ways. And it's terrible. Um, and you know, you know, you don't want your, you don't want your capital tied up in inventory. Uh, so it's very simple. And then we ship twice a year this year has been, or last year, whatever we're at that 2021, 22 thing last year was really complicated because of the global shipping bottleneck. As I'm sure everyone knows our wine was sitting in Oakland for three months and reefers. And then, uh, we were supposed to ship October 8th. We still haven't even shipped the East Coast stuff yet, which should happen this Friday. So it's been it's been a nightmare. But shipping basically the first shipment is always the toughest one for people uh, because, you know, they're spending all this money and then they follow me on Instagram and see that I'm spending that money on sneakers and they don't have any wine yet (laughs) and they don't understand what's going on. But as soon as they get the wine, it's like adult Christmas, which doesn't. I mean, that doesn't sound right, uh, but um, and it's not like, you know, you know, there's other things in there with the wine, but, you know, they're very, very, very excited uh, to get the wine and they start popping open the bottles. And then, you know, that transitions into, I think I have like an 85% customer retention rate. And that's because there, a lot of my clients are discouraged. That's the best way to describe them. What are they discouraged about? They're discouraged about pricing. I don't know if it's okay if I'm allowed to say this, but you know, I'm anti three-tier system, like big time. And that's like one of the huge staples of my company. I want people to drink great wines of the world that are affordable. That's one of the reasons, you know, that I sell lots of Burgundy and Northern Rhone, because if you know, you know, Bourgogne Rouge today is crazy. And then the higher up the ladder you go, it gets crazy. Burgundy was part of part of my formal wine education. I want customers to be able to have great Burgundies at great prices. 
like real prices, not these imaginary, crazy, ridiculous, insane prices. And that's so important to me. Uh, and, you know, I have to constantly battle different people trying to, you know, get angry at me or swipe my producers or anything like that. But I don't care because the most important thing is that the customers are getting great wine and they're coming back. That's all I care about, you know, the, Part of the people. Well, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, grad school students that are in, you know, law school, you know, and their father has this huge cellar of Burgundy and, you know, it's, you know, that he got 30 or 40 years ago and they're drinking them with him. And then he, and then the son goes out, for example, and tries to buy Burgundy and, you know, he's buying, you know, Bourgogne Rouge for $50. And he's like, this is whatever Burgundy sucks. Um, and that's where I come in where, you know, for $50 at Fast Selections, I mean, oh my God. I mean, what did I sell yesterday? Uh, it was a limited list. Uh, I sold a Volnay Premier Cru Thai PA for $49.99 net from 2017. If you go and look what the most expensive, inexpensive Volnay Premier Cru Thai PA is, you're not going to find anything under 90. So 50 to 90, that's a huge delta. And more people are willing to spend $50 on this guy. And this happens to be this dude's top line, Laurent Boussy. People are willing to spend that. But $90, $90 is a huge ask uh, for a wine that is comes from a region that's a minefield, you know, because people are discouraged that the, you know, the quality across Burgundy is so questionable. People are discouraged by the prices. People are, are also, they, everybody wants Latash for $150, which is crazy to me. Even like smart, like people who know everything about wine, they still want Latash for 150. Uh, but once you talk about a Latash for 150, um, then you have a willing audience. Um, you know, Burgundy is kind of, so a lot of my, I mean, we sell tons of Burgundy and tons of German Pinot Noir and they're very interrelated. You know, I got customers that love the prices of my burgundies uh you know and the quality is obviously great um but i mean prices that's the number one thing that's the most important when you're talking about burgundy unfortunately uh, but the german pinot noir it's the same people buying it because in germany you can get like the top pinot noir in the country for like 50 or 60 dollars and in burgundy you know i'm not gonna lie you can't get the top wine in the country 50 60 dollars and my smart discouraged burgundy customers who are drinking used to be drinking all the top names you know and now are only are not you know they, they they're drinking the top names in their cellar but they want something new and exciting and that's where germany comes in and again germany why is germany making great pinot noir now versus 25 years ago 25 years ago the stuff was like rat piss you know and why why was it rat piss because you could it could barely get ripe and they oaked the crap out of it just to kind of conceal, you know, oak is like a concealer or something, you know, it's like a, you know, like a Snapchat filter for wine or something. Um, and at the end of the day, when the emperor has no clothes, uh, the wines were green and awful and terrible. And that was my attitude. Going to Germany in 2012 to find wines for this company, I had no clue that I would be selling German Pinot Noir. I went to Germany to find Riesling. Um, but then, uh, I met these guys on and mole and I had this crazy night with them at one of my growers, Steinmetz's house. And the next day I signed them and I said, these wines are too good not to sell. And then I wrote an email and I sent it out and I got laughed at. And most people said, is this a joke? Uh, and I said, no, it's not a joke. German Pinot Noir is very good. You got to trust me. And 
it was slow going for like three years, four years. And then eventually, because, you know, we started with 2011, which is like the worst German Pinot Noir vintage ever. And then we have 2012, which is not that much better. 13 was okay. 14 is good, but 15 is like the 82 Bordeaux of German Pinot Noir. And that's when everything took off for us. But it took three or four years and it was very discouraging, you know, cause people were laughing and joking and, you know, because you, everyone kept referring to this ridiculous Robert Parker review from like 1983. He had some like shitty Pinot Noir from Osmanhausen, which is in the Rheingau. And it was terrible. And I agreed that it was probably terrible, but people would like look up Robert Parker, German Pinot Noir, and this review would come up and everyone would think, oh, they all must taste like this. And, you know, Parker used to be very poetic in his, you know, takedowns back in the day. I don't know. You know, I mean, wine critics used to, you know, take down wines, like movie critics would take down movies or, you know, restauranters, restaurant critics would take down restaurants. I mean, the takedown is one of the greatest, you know, types of reviews out there. Uh, the famous one in Vanity Fair for Jean George's 66 is probably the, the famous, famous one. But the recent one for 11 Madison Park uh, by Pete Wells was pretty unbelievable, too. And his, uh, his takedown of, uh, of Per Se with the like the bong water. Uh, oh, yes. yes. Mushroom broth. And yeah, that was pretty, and, and not, to, you know, the Guy Fieri. So let, let's talk about yeah. your emails for a second, though, Lyle, because, oh, yeah, the email. Uh, you know, okay. that's that's definitely the way most people ever interact with you and yes. and you know bart's getting the emails now and reading them and i you know i know there's other people who listen to this show who got or getting who signed up now because you know they've heard it um so a real quick plug yourself how do you how do you tell people how to sign up and then and then talk to us about the emails because i know how long it takes me to write like a three paragraph email <laughs> and you know months and and you are putting out these, you know, epic tomes on a, on a daily basis. So kind of talk about that process a little bit. And, and, and then, you know, the, I, I know that you've worked out the science of like the timing of them and, and what you offer when and stuff. So, so sort of three parts there. Okay. So basically the emails, I mean, wait, sign up, tell people how to sign up. Oh, sign up. Oh yeah. So basically you can go to www. Oh, I don't, I'm sorry. I'm such a dinosaur saying www. That was very embarrassing. Fastselections.com, three S's, you know, it's F and then ass um, and then actions. <laughs> that was a terrible way to describe it. Uh, but uh, fastselections.com. And the only thing on that page is a little box where you can uh, sign up. And if you can't sign up for some reason, uh, then you can just email me at Lyle at fastselections.com. Just always remember, I'm an F followed by an ass. And uh, that's the most important uh, thing because some people get bounced back because there's two S's. There's always three S's after the A. Um, the email. So obviously I have owe uh, a lot of debt to John Rimmerman of Garage East, but he has a very specific voice, John. And, you know, and I admire John and, you know, he, he's the gatekeeper. He opened up this entire genre of way to sell wine. But I'm different than John. I have lots of interests. I was a film major at BU. I was an art history major. Uh, I was an AP art history in high school. Uh, I've always been a reader and someone who is, my mother was very uh, 
you know, anything about culture she was, you know, kind of swamping me with. And uh, I wanted to, and I, I also, also don't like the idea of talking down to people. And so those were kind of like the things going into it. And our email style has evolved. I mean, and the most important thing now is first, the first question I asked is, why should I buy this wine? Because I'm like the biggest hard ass out there. And if I can't figure out a reason that I can't buy the wine, then I'm not even going to sell it. And the second thing is the metaphor. And I'm sure you noticed that we use quite a lot of different metaphors in our emails. And we discovered something very early on. People don't care how wine is made. I'm sorry. The average person doesn't care, you know, and how people, I know I'm on something called the winemakers pod. I get it. Uh, but if you go to, no, we, we mostly talk about vineyards. Okay. Yeah. Vineyards yeah. are very important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and think about think about when you go to restaurants. Oh, this was such an amazing soup. How did you make it, Monsieur Robuchon? You know, Robuchon's going to be like, "Fuck you!" All right. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, you know, he's just like, "It's a soup. I want it to taste like a soup." You know, or what's his famous line? A pea is supposed to taste like a pea. A carrot is supposed to taste like a carrot. You know, it's not it's not you know uh, uh, complicated. But I wanted to. All my customers are very intelligent, very smart people who generally, you know, are kind of well-educated and well-off. And I wanted to appeal to them, not just through wine. I wanted to appeal to them through whatever they're interested in. So that's why the metaphors, you know, run from, you know, talking about uh, when I introduced a new appellation in Burgundy that was very underpriced. I made up a new type of thing called confusion arbitrage. Uh, which is to appeal to all my Wall Street clients. Um, you know, there's no such thing as confusion arbitrage. There's other types of arbitrages as well. And that, you know, that did very well. Um, you know, I'll use my film background a lot. Sometimes I'll use sports. You know, I called Michelle Luton, who are, you, you know her wine, Sam, right? Yeah. Uh, in our Saint Joseph, you know, she is very quiet. She just goes about and does her work, but she's one of the top producers there. Her prices are fair. And immediately in my head, I'm like, Kawi Leonard. You know, uh, I was thinking, you know, she is the Kawi Leonard of the Northern Rhone in that, you know, she just goes about her work and she has slowly all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, she's amazing. Where did she come from? It was the same thing that happened to Kawi. He was just like, you know, who is this person that Popovich, you know, has uh, drafted? You know, he, his numbers are OK. And then all of a sudden MVP championship and, you know, biggest star in the league representing a new, you know, sign of new balance the whole thing, um, you know, and it just, and the metaphor comes sometimes before, but sometimes after and after. And the other thing about the metaphor is sometimes I don't even know what it is. I have to research the whole thing myself. You know, I'll have to, you know, think it's, it's, it's a weird kind of process. You know, I'll spend days sometimes the email will be written and I'll still be, it's completely incomplete without the metaphor. Uh, and you know, the metaphor has to, or sometimes I'll write, you know, there was a wine recently, uh, a certain bottle of Cahor made from vines that were planted in 1884, and it never really took off. And it's an amazing, amazing, sick, crazy wine. Uh, and I really had kind of no idea how to sell it. Uh, and let's just say I had to get in a different state of mind in order to be able to pull uh, what I wanted to from it. Um, and eventually I got in that state of mind 
And I kind of wrote about the idea of things that are, you know, you know, for example, you know, uh, when Harry Potter came out, it was like the first wizard book. And then, you know, a year later, you had tons of different wizard books, you know, and any, any other type of thing. When there's something that is brilliant and amazing and distinctive and original, you're always going to have imitators. But it's very important not to forget what the original, amazing, distinctive thing is. And I think that's the way to sell this wine. Because this is the best cohort, it's the most original, it's the most distinctive, but it's not the most popular cohort. The most popular cohorts are other wines, you know, uh, Clos de Coutal, things that are 16, 17, 18 dollars, maybe a couple others that are kind of hip, but they're all riding on the back of this certain wine. So I wrote this like huge, very emotional piece about how you have to, you know, give credit to the originators and not the derivative. I called it the classical and the derivative, the email. Uh, the classical was the original uh, a, a cuvee. The derivative was the high-end cuvee. And I kind of just wrote about how you, ha you, you have to pay attention to kind of the classical things in the world and the original things and not just kind of like bug out on the derivatives uh, that come. So I remember that. Email. It's, yeah, it's, it was a great, I remember that email. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it, was, it was a great email because it's so interesting and, and, and it's an original thought, but it took me a while to get there and it resonated. We sold more the, of that wine in that email than any other time, like 10 times more because it's something, it came from a place of, uh, of passion and people understood the concept that I, I was getting towards and how, how I could sell this wine. You know, you can, there's only so many times you can say this wine is amazing. It's got sick fruit. It's got great blah, 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 whatever. No one gives a shit about that. I'm sorry. They want to know how it makes me feel and how it could potentially make them feel. That's the most important thing. It's, it's a wine's an emotional thing. It's not this, you know, technical thing. I mean, it is a technical thing, but no one cares about that part. They care about the emotional part. You know, the whole thing when people are talking about wine, what are they talking about? It's, it's set and setting, or it's about the restaurant you're in and the people you're with and what's in the glass is tertiary or whatever. And all that is true. And that's something that I discovered, you know, very, very early on uh, is that people want something described that they could possibly know about versus something that they don't know about. They don't care about the temperature of the fermentation or the yeast or the this or the that. You know, I'll definitely talk about vineyards or anything that is interesting if it comes up in that way. You know, Poderi Forte, uh, this producer that we work with in Orchia in Tuscany, I think it's the best producer in Tuscany. I mean, owned by the third richest man in Italy. He, he takes no expense at all. You know, we talk about everything that he does. You know, he's created this kind of Garden of Eden uh, type of uh, vineyard situation. So, I'll, you know, I'll talk about vineyards when it's applicable. But if it's just like some average vineyard, you know, whatever, you know, there's very few. One thing I've noticed is that there's very few really, really special vineyards. Every winemaker wants to think that his vineyard is special, but... Most of them are good, but maybe not special in a way that you can talk about them and use that as a selling point. So, and I'm going to let some other guys ask some questions too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, you got to cut me off. The, the, the uh, <laughs> we get the emails once a day. How, you're not, you're not writing that that day, obviously. How, like, Sometimes. How, what's, what's the, <laughs> okay. So what's the, what's the like workflow on a, on one of those emails? Like how long do you are you like, and then does does the business partner like plug it into the science on 
who gets it? Does everybody get the same email every day? Oh, no. Like yesterday? Did you get an email, Sam? Probably uh, not, right? I'll, I don't know. I'll check. Yeah. Maybe Maybe did, because we sent out two, but, you know, uh, one went to previous buyers of Zeritsen, uh, our bottom producer, because he finally cut us down in 2019 and everything was allocated. And then one went to previous buyers of uh, Laurent Boussy Reds, uh, Burgundy. Uh, so, you know, one was a 96 bottle lot. The other was a 60 bottle lot. I can't go to the whole list. People will freak out, you know, and people do freak out when they don't get what they want. So uh, Lyle, on, on yeah. that note, if you don't mind sharing this, how big is your mailing list? That is one thing that my partner told me that I cannot share. Totally I, will tell you, or I will tell you it is large and increasing and yeah. The most important data point of my mailing list is the 85% repeat customer rate. Yeah. But of, but and also active customers is important. You know, people go through lots of things in their life, you know, so I'll have people that won't buy for a year, year and a half, and all of a sudden they're roaring, they got some bonus or something and boom, they're back to it or they got a divorce or something. You know, there's a lot of uh, that. It's, 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 a, it's a large list, it could be a lot larger, but there is a finite amount of the people that I'm trying to target, you know, which are people who like to read emails every day, people who like to kind of geek out about their wine. You know, yeah. our customers are geeking out about their wine like I'm geeking out about my sneakers, you know. Yeah. For me, like I go, I definitely, when it hits 7, 7.30 at night, like I'll have some wine at night, but you know. The rest of the night is for whatever. I mean, you know, it used to be for going out to dinners and things, uh, but, you know, not anymore uh, temporarily. Uh, but, you, you know, I definitely, uh, I mean, I love, I love, I love my customers so, so much, you know, because nothing, nothing would be there without them. And, you know, we don't advertise. Everything's word of mouth. And those are the strongest recommendations. And those are the best recommendations that have uh, customer retention too, you know, because, Generally, I find kind of, I mean, I'm just not going to lie. My list definitely is wealthy. All right. It's just part of the deal. Um, and, you know, wealthy people always like talking to other wealthy people saying, hey, I got a guy. I got a tie yeah. maker. You want, you want my tie maker? He makes the best ties in the world. I'll hook you up with my tie maker. All right. And I'm their wine guy. You know, somebody wants to buy wine from like a cool, interesting kind of thing that doesn't advertise and how do you get it and this and that. And so word of mouth is everything for us. And I've done some podcasts and things like that. Uh, you know, I mean, but word of mouth is everything. And it's not even just word of mouth. It's like someone, the neighbor who's been drinking wine with a customer who's been buying tons of wines from us. Like you just met Sam, you met that dude the other day from LA. Remember? Uh, he was tasting of you and Phil. Uh, oh yeah. 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 You know, about he, Bill. Yeah, Bill with glasses. Yeah, 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 totally. Terrific guy, terrific guy. He 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 is a word of mouth customer. He came to me from somebody else, and he's one of our top guys. And he's recommended me four or five different people. You know, so that's just one little node right there. Yeah, I came from Brian Casey at uh, at the Fairmont. Yep. Ching. I didn't uh, know he was a Lyle fat. Oh, I'll have to circle back and and connect that. <laughs> Bill is a huge, huge Lyle fast guy. I mean, so you know, I I. I guess, Lyle, what I was, I wasn't really necessarily wondering about um, actually how many people it is, but what caught me was your comment about 
the different email lists and how much oh, yeah. work that must be setting those up and knowing you obviously know all your customers, but being able to delineate that and then and then going, okay, so I've got 60 cases to sell. How many people do I have to email that to to get the 60 sold, being that you don't want to have inventory? I'm just I'm 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 loving your um, your model and and honoring like how does he do this? Well, it's also a patchwork. I like to look at like everything as a quilt. You know, I'm never going to turn down anything from any of my producers. I'm working with really small producers. So, you know, year one, they're like, we can only offer you this and this. I'll take it and I'll only send it to a limited amount of people, you know. And some days, I mean, there are days where I've sent out three offers. Two are limited. One goes to the the huge list. Everything is a patchwork. I mean, that's how we do well. And we have to keep, if I get 60 bottles of something, I have to figure out who's going to get it. And, you know, I mean, we have, you know, it's usually, and here's the tough part. You can't just sell wine to people who supported you the whole time because then you're never going to get any new people ever. So you have to kind of work in new people with the people who have supported you. But sometimes people will support you and then they'll just hone in on one or two wineries. And that doesn't work for me. You know, you know, you know, it's great that you love the Andre and Mole Grand Cruz, but we sell other German Pinot Noir and we'd sell all these other things, you know, and these are our most in-demand wines and people kind of like buy other things to eventually be able to get on this like allocated list of Andre and Mole Grand Cruz, um, you know, so there's definitely a, some what have you done for me lately, uh, because that's one of the strange challenging parts of this company is that most, a lot of my customers are used to be able to get anything they want with money. And the buck stops here. I will definitely tell you that because these people have money and they can buy whatever they want, but I'm the gatekeeper of what they want the most. And that's always kind of challenging, you know, and I always try and play it off. Oh, there's always more wine. You know, I'm going to come up with something tomorrow that's going to be just as good because there's also, you know, I definitely have to tell a lot of people no, a lot of good people no, a lot of people who buy a lot no, and I don't like it you know, in, in any way, shape or form, they like it less, trust me on that. Um, you know, but it's all just kind of, you know, it's a patchwork. I mean, it's basically just, you know, if I get small, I mean, I love selling 500 bottles of wine in one email, but I also like sending out five offers to all different types of people in one day of allocations between 30 and 75 or 80 bottles and selling it all of that. It's more challenging and it's more fun. It's more interesting kind of, you know, threading, threading those needles, but that's what I'm constantly, constantly doing. I have to definitely watch myself. We actually have seller tracker warnings on some of the emails. We tell people not to uh, put the stuff on seller tracker until two or three weeks because other people will see it and they'll be like, wait, you bought that from fast selections. How come I didn't get that email? You know, and that starts a whole bad, you know, there's a lot of competitiveness there. You know, people want the rarest wines ever, you know, Um, and that's a lot of my wine. So it's, it's, it's complicated, you know, but I also sometimes saying no is good because if you create a sense of urgency over one email, when you clearly don't have enough, the second email, the next email of something similar saying you do have enough will do much, much better, you know? So you kind of got to play, there's definitely a psychology involved when it comes to selling. Because in the beginning, it was trying to find the good wines. Now that's easy. Uh, but now in order to maximize sales, it's all about psychology at this point, um, you know, and kind of 
you know, you have to have a call to action and a sense of urgency, uh, you know, and the way to do that sometimes is to tell people, no, it's gone. And they'll remember, oh, this is gone next time I have to be quicker or I, I can't pass on certain things or whatnot. You know, it's all kind of, it's psychology. I mean, in the beginning, I mean, the last five years, it's basically psychology. It's, it's strange to say that, but, you know, it definitely uh, is, especially with the words that we use. And, you know, you know, sometimes this is a little industry secret. Sometimes if I say I only have 60 bottles, that could be true. <laughs> maybe, hey, wait, hey, maybe i got a question and i and i want to i just when i ask my question i want to let you know that i have another question just okay. I'm, I'm giving myself a placeholder okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the way to talk okay cool so so i want to know if you got a lot of psalms that are on your um list that are getting emails i would assume yep and, and then so my question is my thing with being a psalmist i need a guy like you like, I don't have time because I have so many other responsibilities in my job that I can't be tasting wine all the time. And doesn't sound like you're bringing in stuff. Is the stuff you're bringing in, though, necessarily being brought in for other distributors as well? Or, is, or are you trying to get sole access to those wines? It's interesting that you say that. I have a very blanket philosophy. Anybody can sell any of my producers if they want to, but there's only one caveat. I have to continue to sell them at the prices. They can't jack up the prices and they can't cut my allocations. You know, I'm not saying that works all the time, you know, I mean, but at the end of the day, that is kind of the thing. I mean, I have a lot of sommeliers that I'm very dear friends with that buy wine for their own consumption, even things that are, you know, because my price typically will be, sometimes cheaper than even the wholesale price in New York for whatever yeah. one. That's another thing that the sommeliers, the really savvy sommeliers in New York understand that my license is in California. Even though I live in New York, I'm a New Yorker, you know, I could never live in California. It's just not my thing. I need to, you know, be able to walk out and get something at three in the morning or four in the morning. And, you know, I like these, those endless crazy nights. I grew up in New York. It's, it's, it's my thing. But the sommeliers, like, I mean, they, they're some of my, best customers. I've got sommeliers at Estella River Cafe right now, um, you know, and other places. And, you know, they sell me, they tell me great things too. I mean, my favorite thing is when the sommeliers tell me, yeah, we opened up all these famous burgundies. Then we opened up your burgundies. No one's ever heard of and your burgundies won. I always love hearing that. That's always, you know, uh, you know, the greatest, the greatest thing I have. I mean, you know, I mean, I love the sommeliers. I have many winemakers in California, that are customers, one sitting right there, um, and, <laughs> and his father. Um, so three, and, and Uncle Bobby, so that's four. Yes, and uh, others as well. I don't know if I'm free to say their names, uh, but I have, it's, pretty a star, it's a pretty startling list of the California winemakers and Washington winemakers and Oregon winemakers who buy wine from me. And if you read the emails, you definitely will figure out pretty quickly I'm Eurocentric, and I'm not... You know, I, I mean, I do have a domestic producer in Oregon. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it was definitely some arm twisting to get me to taste the wines, uh, you know, but I did. It's just, and I don't have anything against California wines. It's just, and the reason that I was so hesitant to taste the Oregon wines is because like, I was like, people aren't going to buy Oregon wine from me, you know, like, 
that's just not what I'm about. That's not what my reputation is. And, you know, it's very hard. It's just like, you know, if all of a sudden I started selling Albanian wine tomorrow or whatever, or Bulgarian wine, no one's going to buy that from me, even if it's the greatest wine in the world. So I, you know, it, it was, you know, it was very difficult, but I understood. I didn't, in the beginning, I thought California winemakers only drank their only wine, only drank their wines or other, or their colleagues. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, but then I discovered they drink probably more European wines than most people. You know, yep. which I, I found. Well, I think there was a time where California winemakers did only drink their wines or their their neighbors. I think I think that's a you know maybe the last decade or two decades that they've kind of opened up their mind to there's another world out there. Wow, I mean that that is, is interesting to me because I remember I got my first order from a California winemaker. I wasn't even sure. I didn't understand. It was like a pretty famous guy, um, you know. But then, but then everything they started telling everybody else and everything, you know. And now it's kind of just like a, no, a normal uh, thing, you know. I mean, I got one guy. He makes probably some of the most acclaimed Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Syrah in Sonoma, and all he buys is like the most high acid screeching Rieslings you can imagine. Uh, it's, it's quite, un, quite unbelievable. I mean, the wines he buys could not be more polar opposite than from what he makes. It's, it's crazy to me. Um, I can tell you when we're off camera who it is, um, which actually that's probably really, you know, I mean, or, you know, any of your, the viewers can, you know, Venmo me $5 and I'll tell you. <laughs> but it's, it, it, the other thing is, if you haven't figured it out yet, like if you see my emails, you start talking to me, there's kind of like a chaos, kind of like a, a chaotic good thing going on. You know, that's kind of why the company is successful because my partner, he's definitely between chaotic neutral and chaotic evil. Um, and so we balance each other out perfectly, but we both had this, chaotic thing you know uh where it's just you know we're buying wines and we're i mean we're you know some off some weeks we'll send out 10 12 offers my partner proofs every offer you know he's my proofer uh and he actually his wife who does our shipping she is kind of the big proofer uh you know so it goes through two proofs and then it comes back to me and i check all the pricing and everything and you know seeing seeing seeing, seeing everything's going to work I mean, I'll still screw up. I mean, you know, I do pricing mistakes uh, constantly. I mean, it's so hard to to look at something that you've been looking at for like two days and the error is right in front of your face and you still don't see it, you know? And believe me, everybody loves to point out that I make mistakes, um, you know? All, it just proves that there's a human there. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. And I mean, it's, it's I mean, I love doing <laughs> Oh, nice. Some dogs. My cats have been spazzing out the whole time. Um, I mean, I love, I love doing it. We're about to hit our 10 year anniversary in 2023. We have a, we have a big, big, big thing coming for that. That's all I'll say. Uh, you know, very, 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 very big thing. I mean, I love doing it, but I'm at the 10 year point. I'm not bored, but I, I'm not, not bored. Um, I guess it, it, it is the way to say it. I mean, I, I love it and we're growing and we're selling tons of wine and we have, uh, you know, amazing different things and everything. Uh, but I definitely want to grow more in kind of different, different ways. I want to be able to hit different types of clients and different types of, of audiences. I'm not sure, you know, as I said earlier, there's a finite amount of these wine geeks that I can sell to, uh, but there is an infinite amount I believe, of people who like good things, but don't want to do any of the work. 
Like yep. there's an infinite amount of those people. And that's kind of the next thing that I'm looking to tap into is, is those people, you know, they're just well, like, what is, Lyle, what is the, so a lot of our listeners are in the biz, but then some aren't. So for you, what is the reasoning that you're not selling California wines? What, so we just did a, a class a couple of weeks ago at, at the hotel about old world versus new world. Um, but, but explain to people for you, like why, why it is that you're only bringing in stuff from Europe. Oh, no one will buy it from me. My reputation has always been Europe. Before, when I was in wine retail, my reputation was German Riesling. Um, that's how kind of how I made my name. I sold lots of 2001 German wines when I was at this one wine store. I sold tons of 2005s. You know, I'd be, I was this German wine geek uh, because, and it, it wasn't because of anything like amazing. It was because like I had this super low tolerance for alcohol um and i could only handle like a couple glasses of like some seven and a half percent cabinet um that was it i used to be you know it, it's just i've always had a low tolerance i still have a low tolerance to this day so i accidentally fell into german wine because of my low tolerance i mean I, in college i could only finish like half a 40 ounce of bud that was it you know i mean and i would be on the floor you have no idea you know, my nickname was LTLFUF, low tolerance Lyle fucked up fast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you think it's because people, if, that there's enough noise here in the United States with wine oh, critics yeah. and magazines and all that crap that, that, that people have enough of that. But, but as far as getting the wines that you're bringing in, that they're, you're kind of turning them on to something new that they don't know about. Yeah, exactly. That that that's that's the most important thing. People love the new and the novel and the and the interesting. And uh, and also the other thing is like I don't sell Spanish wine either. Why? Because there's other people that do it way better than I possibly could any day, and that have deep roots in Spain. Jorge Ordonez, Jose Pastor, etc. Tons of other people. And the same thing of California. I mean, there are tons and tons of people that know the ins and outs of California, have the connections. And, you know, there's a whole kind of, you know, direct market to consumer. And also the other complicated part, I'll be honest, is that I'm direct to consumer, um, that in the hardest pricing complexities I've had to deal with have been with my domestic producer. Because, uh, because you guys are selling direct to consumers and you're also selling to restaurants and retail stores and distributors. So it's a much more complicated uh, to be able to kind of, because, you know, I need to, my pricing is generally very low and that's always kind of, you know, I had to match the pricing with my Oregon producer on a certain price that he shows to his mailing list customer or something, you know, all this kind of extra layers of stuff that I'm just not interested in. With Europe, you know, it's a totally different thing. I mean, they'll screw you in different ways in Europe. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, uh, you know, that I mean, I'll be the first person to buy someone's wine, you know, who's living with his grandmother and making wine on like a half a hectare. And then all of a sudden, a year later, I'm like, what's my allocation? All of a sudden, the prices are double. My allocation is split because he sold some to Sweden. He sold some to here. He sold some to there. And they, you know, there's this whole thing. They want to get it to restaurants and spread it all out. Um, so, you know, that that's definitely, you know, my problem. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm very good at finding crazy things but not crazy for the sake of crazy crazy that are good and like great great values like a, a really good estate that i love you don't sell much of it it's a vanity project those are my favorite 
uh, estates personally. So I had this one producer in the Rhone, Domaine de Pierre Sesh. He's an Sancho Sef. And one day I was tasting at his house and his brother was there. And his brother's like, do you want to taste my wines? I'm like, where are they from? He's like, they're Moselle. I'm like, I got enough German wine. He's like, no, the Moselle in Alsace-Lorraine, Lorraine, between Champagne and Alsace, there's a wine region called the Moselle, M-O-S-E-L-L-E. It's kind of near Luxembourg, but not really. Um, and I said, sure. And he had a little Pinot Noir and a little Auxerrois. And I was like, these are amazing. And, you know, I, I'd love to sell them. You know, my first allocation was 48 bottles of Auxerrois. These are not expensive wines, okay? These are like, you know, $20, $22 wines. 60 bottles of the Auxerrois are 40 eight bottles of the Oxford and like maybe 60 bottles of the Pinot or 90 bottles of the Pinot, you know, vanity project, the amount of cost for me to get the whole wine over here and everything, there's no profit in that or anything. Uh, but I knew eventually if you stick to these guys, they're going to do more interesting things, you know, and eventually he makes another cuvee now of his best finds that's aged in, you know, older barrels for a longer time called Inextenso, and, you know, and it's a Pinot Noir and uh, the Auxerrois again. And, you know, and these wines are so popular. I never have enough for anybody. Everybody loves them because they're so unique and they're so different because the Pinot Noir, you know, it's like a chameleon. It can taste so different in so many places, you know, and Pinot Noir from Alsace, Laurent, I mean, I call it Alsace Laurent, even though the region is the Moselle, but I don't like saying the Moselle because it's too confusing with the other Mosel. Um, you know, so I call it kind of, you know, you know, and, and, and the email was really good because basically I'm just going because I had no idea how to sell this. Um, because sometimes I do Occam's razor when I'm trying to sell a wine. Uh, but I called this, uh, I called it my Henry V offer. Uh, unknown region in France. I'm doing this offer for love, a Pinot and Chardonnay. Uh, I call it, I mean, I call it Chardonnay. Even, you know, Auxerrois Chardonnay, there's kind of this relationship, you know, they're very kind of, it's, you know, I don't know. Auxerrois is kind of related to Chardonnay in some weird way. And it's just better for sales calling, calling it Chardonnay than in the email telling them it's actually Auxerrois. You know, um, you know, but 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 it worked worked very 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 well. I mean, they're one of my favorite estates. And then the other one that I love, I have this affinity for Savoie. Have you guys ever had wines from Savoie? Yeah, Savoie is an amazing place. I visited at least five times. I fell in love. I stay in Annecy. I go in February where it's cold as shit, and it's just an amazing place because you have so many different microclimates, you have Chignon, you've got Haute-Savoie, you have Isère, you have Bougie, you have all these different places. And I wanted, I wanted a producer from each one of these regions. I wanted something from Isère. I wanted and Isère is like this really, really small place that's probably an hour and a half from the main area in Savoie. And the guys that I have, Domaine de Routisson, um, they make wine from grapes that I never heard of. One is called Persan, another one is called Etrari de Hui. They make a ver Verdes. Uh, they make another wine from a grape. And I, I couldn't think of the metaphor for the email. So the email was called The Estate That Makes Wine from Grapes That Nobody Has Ever Heard Of in a Place Nobody Has Ever Heard Of. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I just, you know, when you, when you can't figure out, you know, what, what, what's the first. Uh, uh, Three letters and news, new. No. 
you know? And at the end of the day, if there's a hurricane coming, you're not going to use some crazy metaphor. You're going to be like, there's a hurricane coming. So that's how I came up with the, uh, you know, sometimes I don't go for metaphor. I use Occam's razor. Um, but those are, those are the wines that I go crazy about the most. I mean, I make my money on Pinot Noir from Burgundy and German Pinot and, you know, Grosskrebox Rieslings and rare Cornas and all these different things. But the wines that I take pride in are estates like Domaine de Routesson and uh, Remy Gautier's estate, which he's changed the name three times already. Uh, you uh, know, let's, let's talk about your wine acquisition methods and how you find these guys because, and, and maybe like, pre-pandemic and and now because i know you were always you know it was a few trips a year and you were just kind of oh, like yeah. freelancing freeballing going out there and trying to you know find where you're gonna go and and you know following whatever sort of threads but now obviously that's all changed so how are you finding wine then and how are you finding wine now basically then i mean so it's interesting so the way people find wine, uh, well, the, the lazy find wine by reading American wine critics, all right? But once it's on the page of an American wine critic, the wine's already in the country. So it's a complete waste of time. Um, others, you know, find wines, you know, kind of through word of mouth of their producers. At the end of the day, producers are generally not that kind with you know giving other people unless there's unless there's a producer they want to recommend that does not conflict with whatever they're selling you so that's not really a good place either uh the best places that i have found easily are european central focused blogs european wine stores european instagram accounts and the best even though i'm not on it anymore european facebook groups uh, those are by far because Europeans and Americans have different types of wine sensibilities, I would say. And, you know, the Europeans are kind of just, they're looking, they're, they're, Europeans and Americans are both looking for something new, uh, but Americans kind of are looking for something new that is kind of like a star already. And Europeans are definitely looking at something that could be a star down the road. And that's amazing, but no one's ever heard of it yet. And those are, those are kind of uh, what I appreciate more. They will get something or get behind something that doesn't, it's just quite not, it's not quite there yet. And as an importer, the most important thing in finding a winery is they may not be good now, or they may be good and you can sell it now, but they will be better later on. And uh, usually it's a younger person who has a strive for, to improve, um, you know, older people, well, yes, kind of, it's kind of complicated, but, you know, I definitely am much more, if I find that it's a young winemaker and he's only had a couple of vintages under his belt, like I am on it because I know that whatever he's making now, what it, in five years, what he's going to make is going to be so much better uh, just because there's so much room for improvement. And, you know, that's what you want to do when you're 25 or 26, 27, you want to improve, 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 you know, but if you're 60 and you've made 37 vintages of, you know, Volnay Thai PA and it sells out every year and everything's good, why would you improve? You know, there's no reason for you to improve, you know, you're just kind of going to rest on your laurels. So I definitely look for 
young wineries made by young people. Definitely, I have some older, I'm not being ageist, don't worry. I have some, you know, older uh, winemakers uh, as well, you know, but all the older winemakers, the problem is, is they all retired. Um, you know, Jean-Jacques Morel, he's done. Uh, Biard Gonet, done. Um, you know, they're both kind of my oldest winemakers, both in Burgundy. They both sold their estates to younger people. Um, uh, where else? I mean, and also like, I have one British retailer. I won't say the name. The pal their palate is unbelievable, and they're so ahead of everybody else. I've gotten maybe ten estates from them. Uh, I mean, I don't get it from them. I just look at their website, and then I write somebody. Um, and then Instagram is really good for the wine scene. Europeans are very uh, involved in Instagram and wine, and you can just kind of get lost in an Instagram kind of quote unquote K-hole and, you know, and just keep looking and keep looking and keep looking, going deeper and deeper and finding, finding other people. Um, I've gotten maybe five or six estates from, from just Instagram and, you know, just looking. And I also follow, you know, I follow retailers in Copenhagen and stuff. And, you know, you just got to follow as many and look at as many as interesting people that are tasting as many interesting wines. But I find everything from sources in Europe. There's, there's no question. There's just so much more ahead of the curve and there's this endless thirst for learning and whatever is, is new. Um, you know, and I've got a good network now at this point, you know, um, you know, and there's certain categories I'm always looking for. I'm always looking for Burgundy. I'm always looking for something new and exciting in the Northern Rhone. Um, but, uh, you know, in Italy, we really are Italian portfolio. It's kind of, it's been up and down. Uh, but when the pandemic hit, you know, uh, Bergamo in the beginning, uh, we saw that as an opportunity at fast elections to get a ton of Italian producers because all the restaurants were closed and nobody knew what was going on or anything. And we picked up five Italian producers in maybe like a month and a half. There was an amazing time. It took like a day to get a cola waiver from the US government. All right. Usually it takes like, I don't know, two and a half weeks to get one approved. So I was getting cold waivers left and right. I was getting wine FedEx to your splitting over producers. We picked up so many different producers during that time, but that time is gone now. And uh, all the producers we picked up in the peak of the pandemic in Italy, how many have left us now? I think like six have left us for, for greener pastures, literally greener pastures. Uh, <laughs> pastures you know, they're, they're, or greenbacks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, but, but, but there's, you know, there's so many people making wine in Italy. I'm not worried. I have a list of 15 people to replace them. So it doesn't matter, you know, and I hope to be going, I hope to go in April uh, to Italy and uh, Switzerland, you know, cause I have two huge spreadsheets of, you know, everything. Cause I need to shore up Italy because, you know, usually me or my partner goes to in Italy each year. Sometimes my partner does it cause I don't like large crowds. Um, and uh you know, when you get everything done there. Uh, but then Italy has been canceled, uh, obviously, for, for, for whatever. And uh, so our Italian portfolio, besides that little burst when Bergamo and Lombardi had the pandemic, uh, our Italian portfolio has been slacking a little bit, uh, you know, and, you know, and people have taken uh, some producers from us, you know, I mean, because, you know, we're, we were so ahead in Alto Piemonte and I think we've lost maybe seven or eight Alto Piemonte producers in the last year. It's been terrible, you know, but I'm okay with that. And this is going to be the most cynical thing that I have said. 
but this is like this is like a little preview of like what happens when I talk to my partner. Okay. The same thing is going to happen that happened to our dear producer, Sylvia Barbaglia in Boca. She signed with some, you know, national distributor and Boca is an Appalachian, you know, two hours north of uh, Barolo and Barbaresco. It's kind of, for me, you know, think of it as kind of like a, a Santa Steph, Nui San George type of Appalachian, uh, you know, big burly wines, kind of poor man's Barolo, you could say, but, you know, my I'm selling the stuff for like 43, $44 high quality Boca. And that's kind of, you know, but it's like the best Boca and that's kind of like a heavy lift, you know, because no matter what people would rather drink seventh tier Barolo for $43 or 40 bucks than drink top tier Boca. It's just because the branding of Barolo is so ingrained in people's minds. So the distributor gets the Boca producer and all of a sudden, the $40 Boca is $65, $70 on a retail shelf. Now, is anybody going to be buying $65 or $70 Boca on a retail shelf? Hell no. You know, so they all come back to me eventually, you know, because they realize, you know, I mean, it's, it's not their fault. It's the distributor just getting googly eyes over something new and interesting. And then they realize they see the market is not ready for $75 Boca or $80 Karema or you know, the only guy that can pull it off is someone who has an established name. And he did, Giacomo Conterno. He's selling $150 bottles of Gattinara, you know, but that's because he's Giacomo Conterno. If DRC was making Boca, I could definitely sell that thing for a hundred bucks, no question, you know, but, you know, brand recognition is very, you know, very important uh, for uh, Italian wine, I, I've noticed more than anything. And, you know, our Alto Piemonte section, I, I adore, uh, but, you know, we, 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 we're losing someone right now. And uh, I know it's going to be a failure and they're going to come back to us. So you can never burn the bridge, never burn the bridge. So I say, we'll be here when it doesn't work out. We don't say that. We'll just say, we'll be here if you ever need, you know, to sell, sell some wines again to us. Well, and, it sounds like you are the European uh, Mark Pope, the guy who did uh, Bounty Hunter, because his, oh. <laughs> his whole concept was running up and down Napa Valley finding and discovering wines you didn't know about in his 53 pickup with his three-legged dog tripod i mean he had the whole thing going i and, used to uh, love that catalog and it's completely <laughs> changed now that he's gone but uh what is very it interesting. I'm curious what, what, what are they doing now is every selling wines that it, people have yeah that's it it's no longer exclusive they're not working as hard etc um, and there's a there's a big like private label portion of it too now yeah Oh, I was wow. going to ask you about the Loire. Are you seeing anything come out of there? Uh, the Loire, it's kind of the Spain of France, uh, in my opinion. Uh, you got to kiss a lot of frogs again. Um, you know, I have some people that I work with and that I love, you know, but I'm very, very, very picky in the Loire. And another thing, I'll just, you know, this, Loire is definitely kind of the beating heart of natural wine in France uh, at this point. And that's really not my thing. Uh, <laughs> so yeah none of us have I, mentioned the term natural wine as you've noticed well yeah exactly basically i have some producers that make natural wine i don't mention in my offers that the wine is natural because at the end of the day i'm looking for a good wine if the wine happens to be natural cool you know but at the end of the day i'm not buying wine because it's natural that's the big yeah. difference to me yeah. i think i have three or four producers whatever you know but one of my burgundy producers who I don't have anymore, went to, you know, Sans Souf 
and you know low to no sulfur and the wines were like bubbly and weird and they were beautiful you know before they got all bubbly and weird you know and he thinks they're better bubbly and weird and i'm like no pinot noir should not be carbonated i'm sorry no it should um, yeah exactly unless uh, it's champagne pinot noir should not have bubbles yeah, exactly good point well you know loire valley there's some great appellations i definitely tend to go towards you know, Somor, Somor Champigny, uh, more than anything else. I think that's kind of like, you know, the best appellations for quality in the Loire. There's a couple of people making interesting things in Anjou, uh, you know, and, you know, you know, was the, the, the hierarchy of Sancerre really, I mean, there's one guy in Sancerre now who's actually could, and this, I mean, Sancerre is interesting to me because you have the Cotard brothers and you have Vatan. That's always been like the holy trinity. Those, those were the best producers on Sancerre. No one ever came close to them. There's one guy now who actually might be approaching, might be the fourth head on that uh, Mount Rushmore of Sancerre producers. This guy, Sebastian Rifo. Oh my God. These are the sickest Sancerre that I've tasted since the beginning uh, when I first tasted Francois and Pascal Cotat. But that's, you know, one new great Sancerre producer and what? 35 years, you know, so, and that, you know, that's, that's, that's my issue with the Loire, uh, you know, there's really aren't any great new producers in the Appalachians that could sell. I could sell a shit ton of Sancerre if there was someone that was amazing and interesting and not, you know, making these, you know, commercial whatevers. Um, same with Pouille Fume, you know, for example. And then the other Appalachians, you know, the ones that are much smaller, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but oh, I might as well say it. The terroir is not as good. So they have to have a gimmick. And that gimmick is usually natural wine. You know, a lot of natural wine. Why do you think there's so much natural wine in the Loire Valley? Is, is the Loire Valley like got the most famous terroir like Burgundy does? Of course not. You know, and so they're like, okay, we have this shitty terroir and this weird appellation. You know, let's just make natural wine uh, so we can obfuscate the terroir. No one can taste it and everyone can just taste the process um and you know and that's you know there's too many wines like that you know oh there's this great new exciting estate from the Coteau Giennois I don't want to know about it I don't care you know um just because Coteau Giennois has never been good and never will be good um you know or, or what's the other Quincy you know Jack Klugman wine um you know well Quincy sorry you know I always call it the Jack Klugman <laughs> Uh, you know, um, but you know, the same, that's why I don't mess with the Languedoc, uh, or, uh, R Roussillon. Well, Roussillon, I don't mess with just cause, you know, it's, they tend to be a little heavier and not my thing, but I mean, there are great wines in the Languedoc. There's no question, but you know, again, it's kissing too many, too many frogs, you know, uh, at the end of the day. I mean, I remember when it used to be called the Midi. I mean, that's how old I am. Uh, you know, um, but at, at the end of the day, um, you know, I mean, I have complicated views on natural wine and, you know, I think we're kind of all, all on the same, same page here. Um, you know, I mean, I, for example, I really love, and Sam, I'm sure you do, you know, Jean-Michel Stéphane, called Roti. Mm -hmm. He makes natural wine as well. Uh, but I also believe he's the best producer excuse me, of Cote Roti, but he's always said that he's using no sulfites because that's what the vineyards demand. So there's an actual 
reason, like a legitimate reason besides some sort of blind faith or ideology. So I respect him, you know, the, the wines wouldn't taste as good from these particular soils without, with, with, with excessive sulfur, you know? So I, I appreciate that, you know, but that's, you know, one of the few kind of, you know, reasons. Um, and also I've, you know, and also I don't like losing money. And, you know, I, so I worked with a German in a state, I'm going to refrain from the name uh, and, you know, every bottle was returned to me because they all, you know, the wine tasted great at the estate, but as soon as the thing travels, you know, yeah. across the ocean, it's gone, it's done, it's done for, you know, the same thing with what's his face, the Beaujolais guy, Metros, it's the same thing. Some of the best bottles of my life have been, you know, in, you know, in Beaujolais or Burgundy tasting Metros and the stuff comes here and it's, you know, like, you know, vapid dog piss. Um, but then there's that's the problem though. Then there's still people that are like, it's supposed to taste like that. Yeah. No, it isn't. It is not supposed to taste like that. Wine has the one, the most important thing a wine needs to do is taste good. Because if it doesn't taste good and it tastes like shit and you're slow justifying it, you're the problem, not the wine. You know. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to know. I could go off on this uh, for. I don't want to be, you know, uh, two of two, two of a negative Nelly. But you know, my brain is the way it works. Just it's never really turns off. And so this company is kind of perfect. Like the writing, Sam. You were saying the writing is like my therapy. You know, it's it's what I do at the end of the day. I wait till the end of the day to do my writing because that's like my favorite thing to do. But my least favorite thing to do is deal with the emails and, you know, and I don't like placing orders with growers. If it's a little disappointing, I hate that. Um, you know, those are my least favorite things to do. So I do my least favorite things when I wake up and my favorite thing to do is write the offers like buy and I have a whole process. I write all the offers on my iPhone, by the way, uh, because I cannot, uh, I can't type really. Uh, and I have, you know, I, I just like, I like writing on my thumbs. Uh, so every offer is always written on the iPhone, um, which I know some people think is crazy, but it's just, it's perfect for me. And a lot of the offers, I, since I started the pan, the pandemic started, I write some of the offers walking down the streets of New York city on the iPhone. Hmm. Just, and some people don't like that, you know, like cars. Um, <laughs> but it's, I, I'd love it. I mean, you know, I'll, you know, I'll write on the, uh, you know, the, the toilet sometimes. Um, but I never write, I never like writing when I'm comfortable because the ideas don't flow when I'm comfortable. If I'm walking down the street and the lights blinking and I'm about to get run over by a car that creates more excitement and I'll usually get a better idea. Um, you know, uh, and I have, and I'm always walk when I'm walking down the street, I'm always using my AirPod maxes. So, and I have noise control, noise cancellation here. So no one, no one can even try and talk to me. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's can't hear cabs honking at you right before they run you over. Right. Exactly. I'd rather not hear the cab before he runs me over. It'd be quick, but that's, so that's the way I write the offers. It's all just kind of, sometimes I'll blast off three or four in a row, one offer, takes me it takes me 25 minutes to write an offer wow yeah so it's easy it's easy for me to write it just comes out i mean you know it, i can't stop speaking so i mean you know it's the same thing with writing um so anybody, how, how many how many i said 360 365 wines a year how many how many offers how many and obviously it's more than that because they're usually two or three wines per offer yeah. so 
So 700,000 wines a year. How many wine, how many individual SKUs per annum? Well, I can tell you exactly how many SKUs that we have since year one. Right now, we are about to enter um, the last SKU that I entered was 4485. So we've been in business since 2013. Um, so 4485. Hold on. 2013. We're in 2021 minus 2013. That's eight years. So 4485 divide eight. It's around 561 a year. That's so, the average. And that's, that's because it's, I, I'm, if I get an email for a wine, I'm not going to see that necessarily see that wine again in an email that year. Sometimes, sometimes not. It all, right. all depends. If there's an important producer and I have a large allocation, it's okay. Cause I'll get enough new customers and some people will miss it. And some people will forget, you know, um, you know, like my burgundy guys, you know, like my, my burgundy stars, Brisset, Buffet, Reborgion, uh, I take everything they give me. And if it means, you know, having a little extra wine or doing two or three offers, it, it doesn't matter, you know, and we get so many new customers now that five months down the road, I can do another offer and I can, you know, fulfill the allocation, you right. know, so there's, there's no question. I mean, we basically, we kind of changed the inventory thing just a little bit recently because of what's what happened in Burgundy in 2020 and 21 with like really short harvests. So I'm buying tons of 17s, tons of 18s tons of extra 19s uh, if I can. And, you know, because my 20 allocations are pretty rough and 21, oh God, I don't want to think about 2021. That's going to be the most complicated vintage in the history of our lives. No wine was made, A, and the wine that was made, like goes back to like another era. So all the people are going to want it. And that means only one thing, the prices are going to go crazy and then 2022, who knows what it's going to be. But if it's a normal vintage, then they'll lower the prices 20% after raising them 80% and saying, oh, we lowered the prices. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't wait for that. So that's coming. So that's why I'm buying tons of 17s, 18s, and 19s right now. Uh, you know, and, you know, and there's an unlimited supply for Burgundy. And I'm, I'm an unlimited thirst for Burgundy because Burgundy is the only wine this is going to be somewhat controversial. We're like the the peak high of a great Burgundy is that is higher than the peak of any other type of red wine, and people are always chasing that dragon, man. Always, no. No. and they always think that next bottle is going to be the one that makes them cry, you know. And uh, so that's kind of the thing that goes on with Burgundy, and I, I perpetuate that. I mean. You know, I mean, but I've had enough Burgundy to know that that's actually not accurate. You know, there's, it's just, it's very rare. It's as rare in Burgundy, just like it is as rare in the Northern Rhone to have a wine that actually flips your script. I mean, it, I, you know, I can't think of, I mean, I've had in my life, you know, you know, maybe 10 Burgundies or, or 10 Northern Rhones that have completely flipped my script. You know, and the surprises, maybe two or three burgundies and maybe like one Rhone. When I say a surprise, I open a bottle, I expect it to be good. And then it turns out to be transcendent. 
You know, I uh, I remember Joseph Roti, Marcinet, Uzaloy, 1999. I drank it with Cottrell. You guys know Chris Cottrell? Right, oh, yeah. Podcast. He's, he's been on the show a couple times. <laughs> okay. Cottrell's my homie. I, uh, well, he worked for you at Crush, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He, he, was, he was working at some pet store that smelled like dog piss or a wine store or something. I don't know what the hell it was. Uh, something. A no, it was, it was both. It was a pet store <laughs> and wine shop. Like up that my uncle used to sell wine at it. It was like yes. up, uh, up, up in like upper Manhattan near Columbia or something like that. Right. Or something. I did, I did not yeah. understand that store. I would walk in and I'd be like, this smells awful in here. And then there's like a glass window and there's like all these dogs pissing and shitting and, 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 and just like barking and I'm like, who thought of this? You know, what are you gonna have? A, is there a sewage treatment facility in, in the next? You know, that's the next thing coming. Wine and sewage. You know, uh, but so I drank, and my apartment was above Crush, and me and Control used to hang out all the time. And you know, he was started as a stock guy, and we, I invited him up one time, and we did some things, and then we drank this Roti ninety nine Marcinet Uzaloy. This was in two thousand seven or six and it blew both of us away and that set chris that bottle set chris on his path hmm. like there is you can ask him about it next time he's on or anything it was just a remarkable remarkable it should not have tasted or smelled that good in any way it's freaking marcinet it's from roti you know roti out of eight out of every 10 bottles are closed as fuck anyway you know so it's shocking that it would be open and it's even more shocking that it would be transcendent um so but at the end of the day like you're all people always want because that experience is you know it's it's a peak experience it's like climbing to the top of the mountain an amazing orgasm you know it's that type of experience and you can only get that with you know burgundy you know i mean and that's why people will spend so much money on it you can get it in Rhone, but like i think much 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 lesser you know uh i mean it, but the top Rhones can definitely do the same things the top burgundies can do but you know you're lucky if you have i mean unless you're you know a man of great means you know uh, you know uh you know a dozen of these bottles in your life i would say i mean i've been exposed to a lot of wine drinking a lot of wine and to have these these crazy experiences with with burgundy or northern rhone it's 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 so rare but if it wasn't if it was more commonplace the whole market would collapse so you know people are always always chasing that and uh you know and i in my marketing i you know i mean that's the great thing that's why that's why burgundy will always rule because you have that possibility of something just out of bounds that's the best way to describe it. Something that is completely out of bounds where, you know, when you open a bottle and you, you're at a dinner and the only thing you can talk about is how goddamn good this wine is. You can't talk about anything else, not the food, not anything, every sip, every smell, you're just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You know, I mean, it's, it, you know, and uh, those are the experiences that people kind of chase. And I do, you know, and part of my marketing is I definitely let people believe possibly that the next bottle they buy from fast lessons could be that experience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, this, it's, it's, it's why, I don't know. I mean, I like the idea that there's no guarantee or profundity in, if you spend a thousand dollars on a bottle of burgundy, I love that idea. 
like because that's why wine is the way it is because money still can't buy you that profound experience it still can't it has to be the right bottle that was stored the right way from the right vintage made by the right dude and you have to open it at the right time so yeah. there's a million different factors you know um someone asked me a question because i'm not going to shut up well i'm wondering lyle if you ever had if you ever tasted a wine and you loved it and you brought it in and for some reason it just didn't resonate and so you had a, like a clunker on your hands oh that you God. just end up sitting on it i mean we don't sit on it but we definitely you know, the first offer people buy and then they taste it. And the second offer, if no one buys, I usually know I have a clunker on my hand. You know, we have certain estates that we love personally, me and my partner, that just haven't resonated because they're too geeky or too specialized. I have a producer in Burgundy who basically, he's making wines that are dry German Rieslings, but he's making them from Chardonnay. All right. Mm -hmm. And it makes no sense to most of the list, but it makes complete sense to me, me and my partner. And we love this wine and we love the guy, but they just don't do as well because they're just too geeky and they're too unburgundian. You know, the dudes, I mean, I, I'm giving it away now. The dude's Dutch, so he's not French. And, uh, you know, but he's worked for like Lafon, you know, and people like that. His wines taste the polar opposite of Lafon, just to get that out of the way. Um, you know, I've had the, that German estate, natural wine estate. That was a freaking clunker. Oh, my God, that was a clunker. Um, and it was really funny, like, what happened? Basically, Alice Fearing was, like, really a huge fan of this estate as well. And I think <laughs> this is a great story. I, I, for some reason, thought the guy at the, who run the estate was, like, a, a, a Jewish German guy. And he also was a philosopher. So the whole email, I, I called him the Jewish German philosopher. And Alice writes back, he's not Jewish. Why are you saying that he's Jewish? I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, you know, I, I, I thought it was, I don't know. I don't know why. I, I just, maybe I'm kind of projecting what I want him to be, you know, as a New York City neurotic Jew onto him. And I don't really know. And Alice said, you have to correct it. You have to send out a correction, you know? And I'm like, okay, I will. I, it's just so weird. I, I literally, the title of the email was like the Jewish German philosopher. And the guy wasn't Jewish. It was pretty funny, actually. Um, that was a huge flop, but not because, you know, I misappropriated his religion. It's just because the wines were natural and, you know, they tasted like garbage and they were mousy and whatever. They tasted beautiful, though, in the room of the winery. Um, and then, you know, there's certain vintages. Like the reason I didn't want to taste Italian, I didn't want to sell Italian wine is very simple. Because American wine consumers are super insanely picky about what vintages of Italian wine they're going to buy. And if it's a, a bad vintage, they won't buy it. And why won't they buy it? Because of the, you know, the, the, the technological kind of, what's the word? The whole country is not on the same page when it comes to technology for wine. So a bad vintage in Italy in the 70s, it was vile vile you know nobody wants 72 chianti or whatever or 72 barolo you know you just avoid those at all all costs because a bad vintage was truly a bad vintage but nowadays the 
people still cling on to the idea that bad vintages are undrinkable, but everybody who knows anything knows that there really aren't that many bad vintages these days anymore, just because there's so many winemaking improvements and cellar improvements and vineyard improvements and all this work, you know? So recently, 17 Barolo, oh my God. I tasted the wines, man. They're amazing. They're beautiful. It's not 16, you know, but everybody bought 16s and no one's buying 17s because... They think, you know, one critic said one thing about the one critic said one thing about the vintage or whatever. Uh, 15 white burgundy, the same thing. Friggin' Alan Meadows wrote the famous sentence, you know, these wines are very good, but they are creatures of their vintage. If you call a wine a creature, it's game over. You know, you can't call, you can't, it's there's just nothing appealing about that. And you know, uh, so that I, you know, 15 white burgundy and 15 Chablis. Uh, and 17 Barolo are the two toughest things I've ever had to sell in my entire life. Because if I'm a retailer, I don't have to buy 17 Barolo. I don't have to buy 15 White Burgundy. Maybe a couple things here and there just for people coming in who don't or, or, or aren't very, you know, uh, you know, caring. They just want a good bottle of wine. It's the next vintage, sure. You know, but 15 white, you know, I'm getting allocations every year and I'm like, oh my God, how the hell am I going to sell this? You know, and then writing back to the winemakers, I'm sorry, Americans don't like 17 Barolo. I don't know what to tell you. You know, oh, it's the worst. That is the worst part of my job, you know, is telling someone that like their life work is just not getting a reception here. Yeah, that's got to be fun, really. Oh, I, I, I hate it every day. We call them Dear John letters internally, you know. Sometimes I'll have my partner write. My partner is amazing at one thing. And what, you know, I mean, he's amazing at many things, but the best thing that he's good at is telling people, fuck you without telling people, fuck you. Um, well, since you have no opinions at all, <laughs> um, I was over in Napa picking up uh, a couple of loaves of really good baguettes for dinner on Saturday night. I drove past naked wines and we've been oh. over there. Yeah. <laughs> well, you talk about doing a business and a big business and making money and providing something that no one else has. And I know I'm, we laughed at them, et cetera, et cetera. So um, what, do you know these folks? And just I've heard of them and I know that they make a lot of money and uh, they're selling in, indistinct what's the word they're indistinct, selling banal, yeah. indistinct banal wines to indistinct banal people um i guess is the i mean basically they have they've created a false sense of quality and uh specialness you know basically because anybody can create a company and be like we're doing the work we're finding the stuff for you and then if the stuff comes and it's not good but if people are told it's good, the company is winning because, you know, you have to be honest with your customers. You have to tell them this is good and this is why it's good. You know, you can't just create an air of this is good and, and you're selling bad things. You know, there's kind of like a social contract that goes on between, you know, a retailer uh, and customers. You have to give them good product. You can't give them bad product and say it's good product because then that perpetuates all the bad wine in the marketplace. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned naked wine because there is no, I find that there is no naked wine type company that is actually giving people good wine. 
You know, the idea is to give people good one. We do all the work, yeah. you don't yeah. have to do anything. And we find comes. them and you won't find them anywhere else. It's just an exclusive positioning. Yes, because they're closeouts. No, sorry. Um, uh, hey, hey, Lyle, I, yes. I know I have to run, um, but I'm going to keep reading the emails and tell everybody to sign up. That I appreciate it. And I hope to see you one day, you know, not one day um, post pandemic, we can take our masks off and uh, you know, have a glass of wine. But yes, I, I cannot wait. You know, I'm so sick of these N95s. So, <laughs> so sick of them. Uh, but yes, this was, uh, I mean, is this over or is this just the Sam Katori section over? Or, I mean, I, you know, I, I, th I think what we're going to, I think we should wrap. I think, yeah, wrap. I think we're going to have you back on and uh, with some planning. And I, I want, I want Brian to taste some wines that you brought in because I, I <laughs> John's well, and, and Sam, I, I have a good idea. I think what we should do is when we have E40 on, we should have Lyle on the same show. Perfect. All right. Wait, E40, really? See? We're, we're, working, on it. <laughs> we're working on it. But I, I do think, you know, you're, we didn't get into your palate per se. And I yeah. think it's hard to do without wine. So, and yeah, I know so that your palate and Brian's are going to line you up. and Phil right. get on an email thread because... I know what you guys have and I know what I have and we could okay. figure it out. So we're tasting Perfect. the same wines. Perfect. Yeah. All right. And then can, right, can yeah. we do, can we do a quick wrap? Because I want to know who the winemaker is in California. That's buying uh, a lot of the wine. Oh, yeah. Wines. Just, just how do I know when, uh, uh, you know what? We'll, we'll do we're that. We're signing we'll out. In a second. Yeah. Uh, so subscribe, review, find us at winemakerspod.com. Uh, we love you all. See you next week. And, uh, oh, Barton, you have now. Yeah. Stay safe. Uh, See y'all. Yeah, stay safe. We'll talk to you soon. All right. I think we should all take.